Hi, this is Ruth Friedman, and I serve as the Maharat at Ohev Shalom, the National Synagogue in Washington, D.C. And welcome back to my weekly Parsha podcast, Life Imitates Torah. So this week, we read Parshat Mishpatim, which introduces a big set of laws to the Israelites, ostensibly after they've received the Torah in last week's Parsha, they've gotten the big highlights, and now they're going to get a bigger set of laws. And there are a lot of questions about, like, why specifically this set? Why now? Why doesn't include more? Like the location and function of this set of laws specifically is a bit confusing. Um, and it's not entirely clear exactly why here and what it's doing. And what a lot of people point to is that the first set of laws that is given are the laws about the Evid Avery about the the Hebrew slave. And um, as we've discussed in other years, there's there's a, it tends to be a bit of a recoil from this because the Israelites have just been freed from slavery in Egypt. We're now celebrating that we're God's people. We've gotten the commandments, you know, freedom in whatever sense of freedom we're talking about here, freedom to practice our own religion is being celebrated right now. And then the Torah just thrusts us into this world of like, oh yeah, and by the way, when you have slaves, here's how you should treat them. It's like, what do you mean? What do you mean when we have slaves? Isn't slavery a fundamentally bad institution? Why are we suddenly talking about having slaves? It, it seems just like completely um, inappropriate in that sense. And like, there could have been a million other ways to talk about, other laws to talk about. And yet for some reason, this is the first set of laws. And so there's lots of different opinions about what exactly what role this is playing here and why located here specifically. Now this year I wanted to consider one approach to that. And that is what happens when the Evid Avery is done with his time. So when the Evid Avery is done with his time, upon the conclusion of six, either six years of service or in the seventh year of Shemitah, there's disagreement over whether they get freed by Shemitah or whether they have to, excuse me, whether they have to serve a full six years to their master. When they're done, they can go free. But then the Torah adds a stipulation. If the servant, the slave says, I love my master. I love my wife. This is a wife that he has married since joining the this family, this household. And I love my children, children that have been born to him since he joined. I don't want to go free. Right? If he goes free, he can lose all of that. He's back on his own again. So he says, you know what? I love this. I love being here. I love the, my family. I love the people. I don't want to lose that. So then what happens in that in that case? And so his, his servant takes him, his master. His master takes him, El Elohim, to before God. Right? And it puts him sort of against or near the door or the mezuzah, the doorpost, and so his master shall pierce his ear with some kind of a tool, and then he shall remain his slave for life. Now, this process actually makes, I think on the whole, makes commentators, makes us very uncomfortable, right? Because it's like, okay, the slave can choose to stay 
But then it's not just about staying, it's about taking his ear to the door and then piercing it, which seems like a very dehumanizing, demeaning thing to do to a person. So what exactly is going on here? And the majority, I would say, of rabbinic interpretations of this ear piercing see it as a negative thing. And in fact, they see the idea of a slave wanting to remain a slave a negative thing. As an example, I wanted to look at the explanation. The Kliakar has a lot of explanations on this. And one of them, he says, why the door specifically? And he says, because the doorway represents freedom. And he gives the example of someone who is sitting in prison, the pokrim lo petach, and they open the door a little bit or make a little opening. And they say, go, you can run away, right? Get out of here real fast. But the prisoner says, you know what? I kind of like it here in prison. In, the, in prison, I've got food, I've got water, so I'm just going to leave that door open. I'm going to continue to sit here in my cell. So the Kliyakar says that's kind of what's going on with this Evid Avery, with this Hebrew slave. He could have freedom, right? He could walk out that door, and yet he is choosing to stay. He is choosing not to be free, so to speak, and he's remaining in his master's house, and therefore his door, his ear has to be pierced against the door to represent that he is choosing not to be free. And in fact, he takes it even further. He says that when the slave has to say, I hafti et adoniv et ishtiv et banai, right? That I love my family. It's not just that he's expressing love for his family, but as the Kliakar says, harehu machlif ahavat Hashem yibarach ve'ahavat ishto hashivcha. He's actually exchanging his love of God for the love of the shifcha, um, the the sort of the the female slave that he has married, because the, the the rabbinic understanding is that the woman that he is provided to marry as a wife is a Canaanite, a Canaanite um, maidservant, I guess you could say, and so he's basically saying, no, I love her more than I love God. Now, what's really going on here, I think, is a big resistance to this idea that someone could voluntarily choose slavery. I think that slavery as an institution, even back then, made people uncomfortable. And the notion of sticking Yetziat Mitzrayim, the Exodus, right next to these laws is also uncomfortable. It, it doesn't feel good. It's not a source of pride to say, oh yeah, the Torah allows slavery. Now, of course, I, I don't want to read too much of it in using my own context to read retroactively. We're talking about plenty of societies that for a very, very, very long time had slaves. But I think perhaps also because this slave is an Ivri, Right, he's a fellow Israelite. I think that there's like this strong, just this discomfort with the idea that you could have a Hebrew slave, and all the more so that that Hebrew slave could love their master so much that they want to stay. And so, as I said, we tend to, I think, kind of like recoil or shift uncomfortably in our seats when we read this, and that we join in a long list of rabbinic interpretation that shares that discomfort. Um, and so I've been thinking about, okay, well, what, how else can we view this? And I think that it's important to take a step back and recognize what is the institution of an Evid Ivri, of the Hebrew slave? Why did it exist? It existed because someone could be so poor or in such big debt obligation that they cannot pay off their debts or they cannot support themselves. So one opportunity. One option was to sell your children into slavery, 
or you could sell yourself into slavery and basically work off your debt. And that what that means is that someone could go from such extreme poverty that they are pushed to make decisions about whether they have to sell their own children or not. I mean, let alone, I'm sure they don't have food or any access to basic anything, right? There's such desperation. And that this institution of temporary slavery, right, because the person is not a slave forever, they go free after six years, is actually in some ways a means of stabilizing a very unstable situation. It's a means of taking someone out of such a desperate, horrific situation, and not to romanticize slavery, God forbid, but at least giving them a home, food, right, a family, shelter, like all of these basic necessities, clothing, that are the Torah certainly views as essential for basic functioning, and I guess for the basic baseline of what it means to be a human being. Now, Again, as we said, we don't want to romanticize slavery, nor do we want to act like, well, then it's the privileged, the privileged class are doing the impoverished such a favor by letting them become slaves, God forbid. And that's where I think this language that we see of the Evid speaking up and saying, Ahafti et Adoni et Ishtiva et Banai, lo et is so important. We tend to focus on the negative parts of that, right? That it's so uncomfortable that he would rather, as a Kliakar said, he, he's, he's um, switching his love of God for his love of his family. But let's think about how this could be read positively. This is a slave who makes a conscious choice and has the power to make that choice. He says, no, I know what's, for, I know what's out there for me and I know what's here for me. And I love my family. I love the position I've been put in here. I don't want to go free, right? This process is only initiated by the slave himself saying this out loud specifically. Now, think about how amazing of a statement that is when we think about slavery. And I'm not totally sure that slave is the best way to translate Eved here, because when we think of, you know, of, you were also slaves in Egypt. This is not the same thing. This is not the exact same institution. But what, so what's amazing there, here, and I think sort of one of the chiddishes, so to speak, of this institution of slavery versus the previous institution of slavery that the Torah knows, which is the experience in Egypt, is that this is one that is actually guided by the slave himself. That this is not one in which the slave's voice is stripped from him or her such that all they can do is cry out, like a, a basic, um, you know, almost animal-like cry out that lacks words, just like the cry is out to God in the beginning of the book of Exodus. This is one in which the slave can articulate his feelings perfectly and articulate that he is foregoing his freedom. And then I wonder also if that's part of what's going on with the ear piercing, that it's not something that's designed to, to sort of shame the slave or to demean him in any way, that maybe it's also a sign for other people and for the slave himself to know this is someone who chose to be here. He chose to remain. Right? It's actually, in, in a strange sense, it, it's actually an empowering thing for this person to do, is to say, I'm going to mark myself in order to indicate that I have made a decision about how I want to live my life. Now, again, I don't wanna walk away from this having romanticized slavery or even okayed slavery, 
right? When we say that, I think that especially, you know, for Americans, it, it's way too loaded of a term to use in English. But I do think it's important to consider that if you can set aside all the baggage, so to speak, of slavery, this is kind of a cool system in which someone can be rescued from the depths of hell and given some kind of stability to work for someone else and then be empowered to make the choice to stay. That is a radical shift from anything that we have seen now. Any of the Israelites experience in Egypt in which they were completely stripped of any autonomy. And so as much as we look at this and are, and are freaked out by the the similarities to Egypt, I think also we have to calm ourselves a little bit from that perspective and also look and appreciate all the differences at the same time. Shabbat Shalom.